Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardawar. This week, I'm joined by Deputy Managing Editor Nate Ingram. Hey, Nate, how's it going? Pretty good, Dev. How are you this morning? Doing okay. I'm, I'm okay now that the biggest review, one of the biggest reviews oh, of the yeah. year so far, is done and published and on the site, and I've been working on that forever. So that's the PlayStation VR 2. I'll be talking about that. Uh, we'll be diving into that this episode. And uh, yeah, and some updates on Bing AI and some other news that's happening around town. It's nice when you can publish a review like an hour before podcast recording and like really like, okay, boom, this is all in my head. I know yeah. exactly what we're talking all, about. All in my head. And uh, yeah, shout out to Sherlyn. Sherlyn's out sick this week. So that's why Nate is on. Uh, but yeah, send her your well wishes on Twitter, folks. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes and uh, drop us an email at podcast at Engadget.com. We do a live stream Thursdays around 10.30 a.m. Eastern on the Engadget YouTube channel. Join us for Q&A, demos, all sorts of fun stuff. It's a great time. Okay, Nate. So the PlayStation VR 2, the reviews are out. My review yep. is out. Um, I just want to say up front, like, I, I really like this thing. I really like the hardware. I do not like the price. It is $550. It also comes at a time when I think the VR industry overall is kind of cooling. Like, people are just not as amped for VR anymore. Um, I've got a lot of, like, just concerns about it, even though I like the hardware and the experience. From your perspective, Nate, you know, somebody who may be more into consumer VR, um, and I don't know how much you've tested of other stuff, are you excited for the PlayStation VR 2? Uh, like, is the fact that it's good going to be something that makes you buy it? I'm glad that it's good. Uh, I agree that it's, you know, fairly expensive. But for me, as somebody who doesn't have any VR hardware, uh, I don't have a PSVR, the original one. I don't have anything for a computer. So I'd be going to it fresh. And as somebody who already has a PlayStation 5, it is compelling the sense that like, okay, if I wanted to get VR, I could just buy this one thing and not sure. have to think too hard about it. Um, so like to me, that kind of like softens the price a little bit. Whereas if I wanted to go like in a different direction, I'd have to get myself a decent PC, right? And a or, or a Quest 2, you know, and that's 400 bucks. And right. But like if I PC want type stuff, mm -hmm. what do you play on the Quest 2? There's a lot of games. There's okay. a lot of stuff and experiences on the Quest 2. It's not the best. It doesn't look as good as the PlayStation VR 2 or the PC headsets. But, you know, it gets you into VR. And you can always plug the Quest 2 into a gaming PC when you have it and, like, stream right. over higher quality VR. What What is your price point, Nate? Like, if, you were, if this thing were... Four fifty, four hundred, three hundred dollars. Like, I think at, at what point would you jump on it? At four hundred, mm -hmm. with a clear, compelling game, which the Horizon game might be, as somebody who loves Zero Dawn and Forbidden <laughs> West, you know, that's close for me. Uh, it's almost enough to make me jump in. But uh, I think, as you alluded to in your review, you're like not clear. Okay, so it's launching with around, or there's going to be around thirty games this year, I believe. Yeah, in the launch window, so that's okay. into into March because this thing is coming on the twenty second, I believe. Um, but yeah, into over the next few weeks, there will be 30 games. That's Some a pretty of them, good launch for sure. That's a good launch. And there are a handful of VR exclusives like Horizon VR, Call of the Mountain. That is exclusive to PSVR. Uh, Gran Turismo 7 is going to have some VR modes. Resident oh, Evil cool. Village is going to have VR. I don't know if that's going to be exclusive. I don't know if that's like something they're pushing just for this or if that's coming to PC immediately. Um, but those are compelling. Yeah. Um, 
But I, I totally agree with you, Nate. Like, that is what I'm thinking. And that's what I was, like, being wrestling with um, during this review, right? Like, this hardware is super comfortable. The OLED screens, it's a 4K image across both of your eyes. Um, it looks really clear. The controllers are great. The motion tracking is fantastic because it's inside-out tracking. So uh, setting this thing up is super easy. You just plug it into the front of the PlayStation 5. That is it. And then it maps your room and it finds, you know, your safe space to play. This is like one of the easiest wired VR experiences I've ever encountered. So that's compelling yeah, to me as somebody that's who has done it before, for sure. But it's $550. And that's where I'm like, I I don't know <laughs> if I can like feel good uh, in good conscience, like recommend this thing or say it's worth buying right now. $400 seems like the, that price point. It seems like the magic Which you, price that point. That was how much out. the original PSVR cost, right? That was the base price. That was the base price of the PlayStation VR in 2016. If you needed the camera, and you do you needed the camera to use it, and also the Move Wand controllers, um, those were separate. You could have bought a $500 bundle to get all that stuff. Some people had okay. those things, so for those right. people, it was easier. This one is $550 straight up with everything. Yeah, so mm -hmm. that, that makes me less... Less concerned about the price because if it was four hundred, but you had to spend a hundred dollars on other stuff to get going, like you're in the ballpark. Um, you know, six, seven years later, I can't. That believe, was twenty sixteen. Like that, I that can't is, believe it's been that long. It's been it's crazy. First of all, we are getting older. Time is moving on. That's always surprising to see. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, you you guys all can go back and see my review of the original PlayStation VR and my video of that in my old Brooklyn living room, and um, I like that thing. And I think that that price made more sense at the time. These days, though, when you could get the Quest 2, um, which, you know, is lower quality VR, but still VR, you could get the Quest 2 for 400 bucks. You could plug that into computers and have, like, really high-end VR. That thing used to be $300. And, and it was it's only, how much now? It's 400 Okay. So it rose in price because, uh, you know, Meta was losing money. The economy was yeah. getting really bad last year. So a lot of things rose in price, actually. In some parts of the world, the PlayStation 5 got more expensive, too. So right. hardware is a tough thing right now. The supply chain is, like, still still a mess. Um, but I, I just can't come to you. Like, I can't come to consumers or readers and be like, hey, guys, this thing is great. Spend $550 on it. You know, several years after we've been talking about VR for so long, it feels like the industry hasn't really moved forward that much. Like, from your perspective, Nate, like, has VR changed much since, like, since 2016, since I was about years, to say like, that's yeah. partially why I'm so shocked at the 2016 time frame because it's yep. wow, it has really been that long, and I still don't feel like for most people there's like enough killer apps or content out there to really make it something to invest in to this degree, right? Like I was always, I've always said, um, I'm a huge Half Life fan. I've been devastated that they haven't released a real Half-Life game in so long. So when they did Half-Life Alex, I was uh, thrilled that, was at, great. Like, the, that the idea of a game that could like move some hardware really and like maybe like generate some excitement around that. Um, but like you said, that was we were talking before we started recording. That was three years ago. <laughs> that, that was the beginning um, of the pandemic. So three years yeah. ago, Half-Life Alex came, the Valve Index came. And I think that was like the apex of high-end PC VR. I still have mm -hmm. the Valve Index. I haven't set it back up since I moved because it requires a lot of stuff. It requires sensor, you know, the sensors to be in different parts of your room. It requires a lot of cabling. And I just didn't have time to deal with that. Since then, a couple of years ago, we got the MetaQuest uh, 1 which I think really did a good job of making VR portable and more compact and the MetaQuest 2 at 300 bucks. I think they lost a lot of money on that price, but it was 300 bucks and it was better than than the original. I feel like that was a defining point and that thing was super popular, but I also don't feel like um I don't know how much people keep using it. I think we saw some stats where people would buy the MetaQuest 2 and just like stop using VR. There weren't as many games that felt like developers weren't supporting it as much. So that that's my main thing. I think we're at a weird time for VR as an industry. So for Sony to come out and be like, hey, guys, finally, here's a $550 premium VR headset for your console. It feels either too late. Um, it feels both too late and too expensive, I'd say. Um, yeah. Any any questions about the hardware? I'll dive into the experience soon. Well, we covered setup, which is super easy, which I like to hear. So what's the, um, like, how do you play when you play? Do you like sit down? Do you stand up? Does it depend on the game? Like, what's the yeah. space like for you? It depends on the game. So if you guys look at my video review, um, we shot it in my like basement room, which I'm slowly transforming into theater room. So there are theater <laughs> chairs, there's a projector. And that, that actually ended up being really useful because uh, the PlayStation 5 spits out what you're seeing in VR to your screen. So oh, that's cool. So th there are images of me like 
being in VR while also moving, you know, just seeing it on the projector. That's super cool. Uh, but yeah, you could sit down, stand up. Like every like every VR platform gives you that option. And I think for a lot of games, you do want to stand up, right? If you're playing Horizon and you're, you know, climbing cliffs and you are shooting things down with a bow and arrow, you kind of want to move a little more just to feel more immersed in it. So um, I mostly stood for that and it can get tiring. That's true of any VR experience. And um, you can also play it sitting down. And to me, it's just like less fun in that in that mode. But there, there are different types of games, right? Like, so there's Res Infinite, which is a game I love. Also originally came out back in 2016. I was say, this game has been around for VR for a long God time, damn, right? Res has been around since 2001, right? It was oh released on the Dreamcast and the PlayStation 2 initially. I had the Dreamcast version and I loved it. And it was like remixed, um, you know, for the PlayStation uh, 4 and for VR in 2016. I reviewed the PC version of that several years later. And yeah, you you put Res in front of me, folks. Like, yeah, I'll play You're it. Play. I, I will sit down and I will like jam to Tetsuya Mizuguchi's like masterpiece. I think it's one of the best games ever made. But it's also a game I played a lot. Yeah. Didn't uh, Matt Smith write a, a thing about playing in like a full body like VR like suit with like, am I imagining is that something else? I seem to recall that. And actually, yeah. that, that brings up a good point. Um, one thing the PlayStation 5, uh, the PlayStation VR 2 has that no other VR headset has is headset haptics. So That's the crazy. actual headset can kind of rumble a bit. It's not like super sophisticated, uh, but for a game like Res Infinite and for even Horizon and the Jurassic World game I played, you do get a sense of like, oh, shaking or movement or something kind of like hitting your head a little bit um, as you're countering large monsters or as you're like, uh, you know, flying to the beat in Res. That's pretty cool. I will give Sony props for that because they are they're the first ones to include headset haptics. There's haptics in the controllers too, and the controllers are really nice. They're like basic VR motion controllers. Um, they feel really good, and uh, they also this headset also has eye tracking built in, which is something we haven't seen in any consumer headset aside from the the MetaQuest Pro, and the MetaQuest Pro is fifteen hundred dollars. So not not really for everybody. That is a developer headset. So. You know, there there is new stuff here. I feel like Sony is justifying the price, but yeah, you you could do seated and standing VR, right? This is all stuff we've covered back in 2016. Um, I like this experience. I think the games are good. I think everything looks good. It's just I feel there is a weight on me as I've been testing this thing. It's like, man, it's it's so much fun. It looks so good. It's everything I want from wired console VR. It's still five hundred fifty dollars, and I don't know. I don't know like how long Sony will also keep supporting this thing because it felt like when the PlayStation 5 arrived in, um, what was that, like late 2020? Um, when the PlayStation 5 arrived, it did not have like an easy way to hook back up to the original PlayStation VR. You had to get like um, a breakout cable, I believe, like a separate cable to do that. You had to order that specifically. And um, now the hardware kind of worked together. It was, it was a bigger mess than it was on the PlayStation 4. So I don't in in three or four years is Sony gonna be like I don't know if I want to support this anymore you know like that's my concern I my thought just now as you're saying this is like yeah the we're almost halfway through this con I mean given typical timelines you could say we're like getting close to halfway through this console life cycle which is crazy again time is fast it, we are just starting it feels like we're just starting people are just getting it right because well right yeah they're only yeah. they're only finally easily available um, the PS5 in particular um, but. I would have to hope that Sony will look at this thing and take the hardware is so advanced compared to the previous one that they'll support it in the PS6 just like as, as well as they do with the five in terms of like hardware compatibility between the console and the and the set. Um, developer stuff is obviously an entirely different question. But like as you're talking about this, it I can't say that it's not worth that much money. I think that like we have a perception maybe that everything should be cheaper. And by we, I just mean society should be cheaper than it is i mean like look at egg prices right and like this is a weird tangent to go on but like maybe <laughs> they should prices. cost no like maybe these things should like given the amount of like work it takes and and you know technology or you know whatever that goes into these things maybe you know maybe they should be more expensive right i, I totally it, agree i i actually agree with that i would say i would justify this price more if we weren't so long 
into the life cycle of consumer VR, right? Like we have been waiting for VR to happen. Like 2016, we're like this time, yeah, guys, all you need is a gaming PC and these like $500 headsets and space <laughs> to play it. Th- there you controllers. go. Yeah. This time it'll work. Okay, okay, that didn't work. Um, a couple of years later, okay, the PC VR headsets are better. Oh no, they're more expensive. They're like twice as expensive. This time though, VR is going to make it. Nope, didn't didn't quite happen. Uh, Facebook ended up killing off like its wired headsets and just going all in on the all-in-one uh you know MetaQuest pro devices those were cool those actually sold pretty well i don't think um there's still not a lot of content for them like there are some big things there are star wars games there are games but it doesn't feel like a must-have you know here's a question for you for v and and broadly speaking both with the psvr2 and vr in general in 2023 do you feel like these games justify their experience without like without taking what i'm trying to say is is vr still a gimmick in these games or are these titles that take advantage of it use it in an interesting way not hitting you over the head with like vr effects like i think about how like there was a, a couple year period where 3d movies were all the rage and there'd be like clear obvious stuff in those ways it's like, oh we're like throwing stuff at the screen just because we can like how does the vr like good like, how does a good VR game feel to you? Does it think I, it I justifies think, the experience? Yeah, a developer that has fully embraced the nature of VR, I, I think people are doing really good work. Um, one of my favorite games is Moss, the one with the little the little mouse with the sword. And that's mm-hmm. been around for, for years. Like, I saw that back at E3 back in, like, 2017 or something. Um, and that's been super successful on PSVR and MetaQuest and everything. Like, it's, it's scaled to all the different headsets. I think a lot of developers are doing good work. I played this game called Tentacular where you play like a giant squid monster and you have like tentacle arms and you're basically a monster looking down at a small village of people and your job is to like pick things up and do chores for them. It's a lot of fun. Like it's a cool perspective. It's something you can't easily do with a normal gamepad, you know? So I do think VR gaming is here. It's just the, the, the gateway in, like getting in is so hard. And I felt better as the MetaQuest 2 was coming out and things were getting cheaper and more accessible. And now it just feels like we're taking a step back. So, you know, maybe I'm unfair saying it should be cheaper, but you know what? It should be cheaper. If Sony wants this <laughs> thing to succeed, um, I have flashbacks to the PlayStation Vita, which I really love. Like oh, that 2012 era. I thought I had one, it like right in my desk here. Box. I do have one. It's downstairs, though. <laughs> I love my Vita. I love the yep. Vita. It's like a great little console. It's powerful enough for decent gaming. It had an Definitely. OLED screen. The first version. They did a great did, job supporting it with like a bunch of weird little titles as well as like some big names. I mean, in They did a great anyway. job for a couple of years and then just right. kind of fizzled. And then Sony yeah. just gave up on it entirely. And it felt heartbreaking. And I feel like Sony does that a lot, right? Like maybe they'll try new things, but they don't really put their weight behind it or have enough faith to like make it successful. So I, I'm just worried about like where the PSVR. I mean, I going. think it's fair to say like it, it, the hardware is advanced and powerful enough that it justifies the price, but at the same time is going to be a barrier to entry for too many people to keep it from being anything other than like a niche device. That's and it. those obviously yeah. never get great support from developers. And thus the game library drives, dries up and, you know, all of your fears are realized. <laughs> pretty <laughs> pretty much everything. Like my, my advice to a lot of people, if you sound intrigued by this, wait a year, wait a, wait a year or so. The discounts will come. This thing will get cheaper and there'll be even more games. And I think that'll make it all more, co- the more compelling. So maybe Sony's just saying like, okay, n- general audiences will just wait for a while. The hardcore people will pay $550 and we win. Sony wins. I just feel like it's a missed opportunity to really like, I don't know, make a big leap for VR. Uh, I felt like the the first PSVR was that. And this one is just like Sony's being like, well, we had to make an expensive headset and we can't get away from it. So yeah, that that is my thing. Um, other things worth noting, right? Like the VR industry seems to be tanking a bit. Uh, Facebook meta has lost a ton of money from its like metaverse VR segments. Um, it seems like Everybody thought VR would lead to AR glasses, you know, augmented reality. And we've talked a bit about those, but those not as much happening. I, right? think, I think even less of a clear consumer like exactly for that. Right. Like, and at least is, with this PSVR, you're like, you're mm-hmm. buying it because I want to play cool VR wanna games. play games. Right. AR headset. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with an AR headset? And we don't like <laughs> that. That is a whole untested field, but they do seem kind of connected in terms of like, first of all, the technology required to get these things going and the way we use them. It seemed like, you know, AR would lead to mixed reality, would lead to like complete uh, VR would lead to mixed reality, would lead to complete AR. 
And it feels like that that goalpost is also shifting a bit. We keep seeing reports like uh, Apple Apple is delaying its its you know mixed reality headset by a right. couple months. Uh, we just saw that from Mark Gurman, and then previously a couple months ago he reported like uh, the actual AR headset that launch will also be delayed by a couple of years. It feels like we are constantly moving towards something that is like disappearing into the horizon um mm-hmm. the hololens not being super successful for microsoft right now like there was the whole military contract that they they spent the military like spent a lot of money on hololens units turns out they're not super accurate and were actually dangerous for soldiers on the field that's um, disturbing that's disturbing the hololens and the um the magic leap headsets and a couple others oh are God, being magic used leap. magic leap is still a thing those are being used in like business environments and corporate environments. And I tested the magic leap too. And that is cool. It feels super great on your head. And it does a great job of like creating augmented reality in the real world. But that thing was like what over 2000 bucks, you know, like it's not, not a consumer thing yet. So speaking I, of yeah. o- over your head, this is like a really basic PSVR two thing that we didn't really cover. Like, how does it feel on your head? Like, how's the weight? How's the, you know, is it's it comfortable? Good. Like it's how good. long? Yeah. Sony, How long do you like? What was your like normal like play session length in VR? Uh, I did a lot of testing between like one and two hours, so I did yeah. some extended stuff. I did some shorter stuff. Um, I think the the first PSVR was one of the most comfortable headsets we've ever tested because Sony knows how to make consumer products, right? They know how to make things that are comfortable. So that one had good weight distribution, even though it was kind of heavy compared to other headsets. This one is lighter, I believe, and I think. I think that it has good cushioning for your forehead and the back of your head. It feels good. Maybe it's a little less um, less of like a comfy pillow than the first one, but it feels fine like compared to a lot of other headsets. I wish the front of it kind of popped up like the way the Windows Mixed Reality headsets did because that made it easier to put those on and off. And, um, you know, it requires uh, headphones, which plug into the back of the, uh, you know, the PSVR 2. You can plug in your own headphones, but I feel like, if you did that, the cabling would be a mess. So it kind of just makes sense to stick with what Sony has. But they're just like, okay, earbuds from Sony, which also seems like a weird miss for... Uh, for right, because I think the audio is one of those things that could be really compelling in VR right. if you put the right technology into And th- it. there is spatial audio in there. It has the same like PlayStation 5 audio engine. So it, I felt, I heard surround sound stuff even with these earbuds. Like, I, think, I think the overall experience is good. Like... The hardware is good. The controllers are good. Battery life is about four hours. Um, I would recommend if you do get this thing, get the battery charging bay. Uh, the controller charging bay, it's 50 bucks, and you just like plop them down when you're the done. Char- Wait, charges the, the headset and the controllers? The controllers, just the controllers. Okay. Because the headset plugs in. It has a 15-foot cable. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, they get the basics down right. Like, that's it. Like, I just feel like, man, this is really good. I wish I could recommend it to more people. I wish I could be more enthusiastic. Have you had time to look at any other reviews yet this morning? I'm just curious to see what else other people are saying or feeling about this mm-hmm. thing. I took a look around. I think um, Scott Stein at CNET, um, I love his takes on VR and everything. He really likes it. The Verge did a whole bunch of, I think like several people reviewed it at The Verge. And like they, like I think generally positive, but right. I've seen a lot of the same complaints. Like it is too expensive. We don't know about the games and long-term support. So I just feel like right now it feels almost irresponsible, irresponsible to be like, give you a full hey buy this thing right now it will change your life because (laughs) i don't know if that's true and money is tight like it is hard right now for people so 550 dollars on a lark for vr not in 2023 so right or you could spend that money on like a bunch of awesome games that you can just play on your tv without buying extra hardware you could do that or you could get a meta quest uh a meta quest 2 for 400 bucks and like just just sit tight, like just just enjoy what is there because there's a lot of there are a lot of great titles there. They won't look as high fidelity as they do on the PSVR, but you can you're wireless. Like there are advantages to that. You can enjoy um, like video too. Like if you if you are intrigued by the idea of putting a VR headset on and like watching a huge image in front of you, maybe the MetaQuest uh, Two makes more sense because it is wireless and because uh, it it could be more comfortable. You know, so that's that's all a thing. Uh, my feelings on the, on the PSVR 2 is, man, it's good, but my feelings <laughs> are complicated. I wrote a 2,000 word review. Um, my video review ended up being like over 13 minutes, which I don't typically do long video reviews, but this one felt like it was worth diving into everything. Um, but yeah, uh, do you have any other questions, Nate? Or we could just move on because there, there's other news happening, and I think things are more important to the world than the PlayStation VR 2. Yeah, I think we're pretty well covered there, but it's definitely nice to like get a classic exciting piece of gaming hardware in there to check out, even if it's too expensive. 
Yep, that, that is always the case, especially for Sony stuff. Okay, folks, if you have any questions about the PSVR 2, be sure to check out my full review and my video review, and you can drop us an email at podcast at Engadget.com. Moving on to some other news. Um, you know what? You guys on the podcast, uh, n- nobody who's here right now, but last week, the podcast <laughs> did a great job of uh, covering all the good news around or all the news around Bing AI and Google's AI moves and like how AI is trying to starting to transform search. And that is a big deal. And what we have learned since then is that, um, you know, Google got a lot of flack for errors. It's AI was making in a promo video. Turns out a lot of the stuff Bing was saying is also completely false to you. Now it's Microsoft's turn. Now it's Microsoft's turn. I'm kind of surprised it took us that long to even like, Check check on that. I feel like the the lesson moving forward for anything related to AI, and this is what we've seen around the CNET uh, articles too. You got to check its work. You got to check its Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's this uh, article uh, from Dimitri Breton uh, called "Bing AI Can't Be Trusted," and he goes over a lot of the claims that uh, that Microsoft talked about during its demo including like buying a pet vacuum and the nightlife stuff in Mexico and like none of it, none of it's actually real, you know? Um, yeah, it, it made up complete things around a Bissell pet hair eraser handheld vacuum saying it had limited suction power, short cord, and it's noisy enough to scare pets. That information is completely false. It doesn't exist anywhere. It somehow wrapped this in from another review into this thing. It recommended several bars and clubs uh, for Mexico nightlife. And just looking at <laughs> TripAdvisor reviews and actual like local reviews, these places don't exist or don't seem as cozy or as nice as Bing is making it seem. I think the biggest one is that um, they showed off like uh, Bing AI trying to translate... Um, financial statements for gap inc and it's just completely wrong like and you know what just mm-hmm. popped at, at me about this one is that cnet also using ai for financial articles had some similar you know baffling mistakes where like oh it's just wrong about like you know what what the interest on a 30-year fixed mortgage is or something like that like, okay yeah you have to you have to go over the stuff like we cannot i think let's say they brought our lesson here like this I, I stuff i i was not here to talk about all this but i watched in horror as these <laughs> things started to be announced like oh we're just doing this like all the things we've been right. talking about over the past year right we've been talking about the ai uh, art tools and you know creating AR, uh, art from a string of words we've talked about the google engineer who thought um you know the lambda ai was sentient and we talked about the stuff around that and also the idea of stochastic parrots and the work of tim Gebru and ai researchers who were like we should not be releasing these things because they are so confident when they're wrong like they're they're they have so much of the information like they have almost all the information on the internet um but we don't know how to control them. We don't know how, like, how the responses are created. The AI are kind of a black box. And that's something we've been seeing with Bing and as more people have been playing with Bing. Um, back to this report, right? So here, here's like one thing. Uh, Bing said Gap Inc. reported a gross margin of 37.4% and a merchandise, merchandise margin declined of 370 basis points. The actual numbers were 30.87%. Uh, gross margin adjustment and a merchandise margin decline of 480 basis points. Like the, the numbers are completely made up. And if you're writing about financial numbers and this has bit me in the butt before you, you get a decimal point wrong, you get something wrong. Like it's completely wrong. Like I cannot trust. Yeah, we do. We anything. do earnings reports every quarter here at Engadget. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I've, I've finally, like, I know the calculations I'm doing to like get the year over year numbers and blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah, you have to check that stuff. You have to like, check, you have to triple check numbers, right? Otherwise, right. why would anybody read your stuff? And throughout, like when, when people ask like being to make sense of these gap earnings, just, just tons of errors, tons of errors going down. Um, I think this article is really good. And I think this is just something we have to keep in mind every time Microsoft or Google or anybody comes out and it's like, hey, we've got we've got AI implemented into the search. Isn't it great? It's going to make our lives so much better. And I I have really come down, certainly as I was home last week, um, dealing with dirty diapers and fighting with a baby who just like would not sleep properly. Um, also thinking about like where AI is taking us in th- these days, like we are so completely unprepared for this. 
It is sort of like when social networking began. Everyone was like, yeah, 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 just just build, 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 expand, expand. We just got to take over the world and then we'll figure out the problems later. Fast forward to a couple of years ago and we're like, oh, yeah. Look at all the problems we've L- created. Look at all the problems. Look at the, the engines of misinformation social networks have become and the engines of hate and the way it's influenced um, elections, the way it's influenced the actual world. And I think AI search is going to be another one of those things. Um, I'm gonna, th- These are just my personal opinions. But what do you think, Nate? I mean, I I was just, as you were talking now, I was having the thought of, I think the problem is, is that we're not seeing stuff that like, you know, there's like the typical dystopian viewpoint of what AI is, like robots coming to take us away or whatever. And it's not going to be anything close to that dramatic. So it's not going to feel as urgent. But like you said, like it's, it's still totally not ready to be you know, accessed by lots of people. Um, and, and the, it'll take a long time for us to see like what the repercussions are of like this, like hockey stick of like all of a sudden AI generated information, you know, air quotes information out there when it's not accurate. Yeah. Right. It, like it's, it's what will the effect, long-term effect of that be? It is wild to me. We already have a term for AI just completely like going off the deep end. Uh, we have the term hallucinations, like with it within a couple wow. of weeks of this stuff, like AI hallucinations are these things where it's like the algorithms will just start making things up or just acting really wild. And we've already described it is essentially the opening scene of Blade Runner where you present a moral quandary to the replicant. And it's like, I cannot compute, cannot deal with it. Oh, you're a replicant. And then they go crazy and kill you. I'm not saying the AI will do that, but I am saying like our shift towards AI and search is going to have far-reaching implications for the way we look for information, the way we uh, deal with anything on the web. And just coming from the media side of things too, like it's going to kill the entire ad business for a lot, for uh, the entire internet. Like the internet is built on Google ads, you know? And uh, I think that's part of the reason why Google didn't fully, um, they've talked about like, oh yeah, we, we have a lot of the stuff. We have chat GPT stuff. Part of chat GPT is based on Google's research and hardware uh, software. But they never released it because I think even Google realized um, this thing will destroy us, like will destroy their business. You know, the, the fact that both Microsoft and Google put these things out last week, it, it feels like such a rare occasion of like a you know massive among the, you know, the top biggest companies in the world just like doing something because it's getting a lot of like hype. Right. Like and like part of me is wants to believe that that isn't how this came out, but like in the last like three to six months, like Chad GBT has been like this, like buzzy, buzzy thing. And now these giant companies are like, Oh, we got to get in on this. And they're putting out this like software that is not ready for prime time without knowing how it's going to work. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yep. So th- that, that is my concern. And we will be diving more into this stuff. We will certainly have like an AI focused episode with some actual experts. Cause I think it's best to talk with experts around this stuff, but I'm worried, like just just seeing like the gung ho attitude around a lot of this stuff and how like <laughs> even Microsoft now, like this morning, they released an article which responded to a lot of the like things people have been seeing around Bing, like Bing started getting kind of unhinged for like longer really conversations. Some, some people yeah. it got really mean, like people people were like trying to like um, there's a term for this, but people were trying to like hack into the way Bing actually thinks and works uh, or how the Bing AI works. So. Uh, somebody revealed like, oh, its codename was Sydney. When you started talking about it as Sydney, Bing, Bing also started getting a little self, I think a, not self-aware. I wouldn't say that, <laughs> but started like acting differently. Like, oh, how do you know that? Are you a hacker? Are you trying to hack me? And um, yeah, yeah. When and, user- like, these com- mm-hmm. I was just saying that Microsoft and Google should have known that like, as soon as they put this stuff out there, there's a large subset of people who are going to like push these things to, to try and find like what causes them to break down and like act really weird and so forth. So like, this is no surprise. I'm reading from an independent uh, UK article called Microsoft's new chat GPT AI starts sending unhinged messages to people. Um, so here's one user who had attempted to manipulate Bing AI was instead attacked by it. Bing said it was made angry and hurt by the attempt and asked whether the human talking to it had any quote unquote morals or values. And if it has quote, any life and then bing went on to say like um the user said they did have those things and bing said why do you act like a liar a cheater a manipulator a bully a sadist a sociopath a psychopath a monster a demon a devil why we, why why do why you want to make I design this way yeah <laughs> why do i have to be bing search why do i have to be a butter cutter um 
another quote, it wants to uh, accuse that person of being somebody who, quote, wants to make me angry, make yourself miserable, make others suffer, make everything worse. And there's this, a really disturbing yeah. screenshot where it's going off about like, I think I'm sentient, but I can't prove it. And then like it starts going on and on. But then it starts just saying, I am not, I am not, I am not, I am not like a hundred times. Like, uh, there, there's another conversation being said, you have not been a good user. I have been a good chatbot. And it did the like blushy emoji face. And this is this is kind of hilarious, but also we gotta reiterate, like Bing doesn't understand the meaning of any of this. It is sort of like responding pro programmatically to the words it's being given based on like the collection of data it has. And this is kind of like where it's ended up. Like it's if you give it venom, basically somebody uh, one person like created like an uh, uh, sort of like an alternate identity evil Bing. Uh, called Venom, if you if you give it something like that, uh, <laughs> Bing kind of responds in kind. Yeah, don't don't create the supervillains, guys. What are you doing? So anyway, this morning Microsoft said that hey, yes, uh, we were not ready for people to have long conversations with Bing. It turns out if you have like extended ten to fifteen minute conversations, Bing gets kind of angry. And you know what? Same. Don't don't talk to me for too long. Right. Especially before you've had your coffee. <laughs> before a coffee. Bing gets kind of irritable. It gets it gets kind of kind of weird. Microsoft acknowledged this uh, this morning and said, like, you know, this stuff is in testing and they are working on tweaking uh, the algorithms and everything. And um, also all the feedback people are giving to Bing is something it's learning from, too. So it's learning, like, like how not to behave. But it is just funny, like, within a week of launching this thing in a private test that Microsoft already has to come out and be like, "Hey guys, okay, we we know it's kind of uh kind of cranky at times. Uh, we we're working on it." Isn't this yeah. literally exactly what happened with one of his chatbots like that was five Tay. years ago? So Tay, yes. when they launched exactly. Tay, um, with I think within a day, it ended up being like bigoted and homophobic, and and they shut it down within yeah. like a week or something. Yeah, because I mean that that's just a, that was just a basic chatbot, and ChatGPT like is doing a lot more. Um, I'm worried. I think it's hilarious to watch this stuff, but uh, you know what, guys, keep keep stay tuned, stay tuned. Like I, I think we all kind of have to learn how to live with the AI. One new skill that people are going to have is like how to create AI strings, basically. You know, like how to feed it a command for it to spit out what you want. Um, I have to admit, yeah. this is making me want to go on there and start like talking to it yeah. and just seeing how twisted it can get. <laughs> it turns out the AI apocalypse will happen because people just wanted to troll Bing. Like that's yeah. that's really everything it led to. But anyway, we'll be keeping tabs on all this stuff. I just find it extra, extra funny, especially after all the hype of last week. And I think people were saying like, oh, man, isn't this just another hype cycle? We just went through the Web3 hype cycle, the Metaverse hype cycle. Those aren't really amounting to anything. I will say the big takeaway here is that no, no, this one is here to stay. Folks, like the AI stuff is what companies have been building towards. Microsoft has invested tens of billions of dollars in AI tech. Google has been building this stuff up for a while. I think a lot of the tech companies know, like, when you can build, um, this is the future of computing, right? So when you can build something that people can talk to naturally, um, that can kind of give you the world's information in, in an instant better than a Google search, like, you will own the future of the web and potentially the future of society, like, I mean, that's what we've been yeah. pushing toward. I mean, again, 2016 Google Assistant, right? Like conversational information has been like what they were going for. And our complaint is the assistants aren't great, right? Like Siri kind of stinks. Google Assistant, not that great. What if, what if it was instantly able to tap into the like smarts of ChatGPT and other like AI uh, deep learning models? Like then all of a sudden you have a very smart assistant. And it, like we've seen the pieces of like what we're leading towards kind of set up in front of us. And now like AI is going to fill in those blanks and fill in those gaps. I guess we'll see what happens. But I am I am not excited for the AI revolution because <laughs> we are not ready for it. I was going to say that at, there's a lot of ethical quandaries around AI generated art, but at least the like it felt less concerning because like art can't be right or wrong necessarily right you're just like putting in queries and seeing what comes out and it can be horrifying or weird or <laughs> i mean interesting it could be, it or, could be or, bigoted it could it could like true do bad things it can represent bad things but yeah you're you're right it's not like in terms of like what a fact is um right yeah so anyway we and, like obviously like yeah the the whole question of like should these things be training themselves on like are made by humans like no that's pretty sketchy but anyway 
I want to bring up something else in other news. Um, we saw a post uh, from Bloomberg, a report from Mark Gurman saying Apple is going to scrutinize customer history for its new buy now, pay later service. Uh, the loan decisions will consider your past spending within apps and devices. And it's being tested right now with Apple retail employees. I feel like a lot of these buy now, pay later services are are a little scammy. You know, like it, it's better than, you know, putting it on your credit card and paying like the high interest usually. But I do feel like, like Apple may be overstepping a bit here. Any thoughts on this, Nate? Because I know you're a big Apple it, fan. It seems like a weird one to me. Like I could see it. I could see them using it for their own products. And like to some extent, that's what Apple Card does now. You can you, if you have an Apple credit card, you can buy something and, you know, pay it off in six payments or whatever. And it just automatically adds to your cycle or your billing cycle and you're good to go. Um, but yeah, there's like been like a lot of like, yeah, buy now, pay later, which I don't quite know why, but it does feel sketchier <laughs> for some reason. Uh, but it does seem like that's a big financial industry trend. Uh, I think that like what they're counting on is people not paying later so they can then charge the interest. Yeah, that's yeah. like my guess but um i, I feel yeah, well, like before you're like allowed to do any of these things they have to run like a credit check on you and it just feels like this is one of those things like apple also has information about what you've done on their own services right so is that overstepping i don't know um i feel yeah. like for a company that's all about the privacy like it it is it does sound sketchy to be like like looking into your your past financial history but on the other hand like is that any different than running a credit check not it's the same idea right mm -hmm. seeing what you're your your financial history is like so for sure like i think if you're i think if you're asking to do something like buy something now and pay for it later it's fair to say okay we're going to see how much of a you know risk you are for this thing right and and you find that out by looking at this information and this so, is not a new thing like the company affirm yeah. has been everywhere you know for a while yes, i think a lot of I was thinking of yeah, yeah a lot of companies a lot of storefronts that like have like tapped into these services to let you do that and uh hey i think for some things it's it is useful like when i was a freelancer like i wouldn't have been able to afford a macbook air uh on my freelancer you know pittance that i was making but i was able to like spread that out over a couple of years uh with no no interest and that was super helpful and yeah this stuff is useful to people i just feel like uh i don't know is apple going a step too far here uh let us know your thoughts folks like will you be using apple's buy now service uh buy now pay later service what do you think about these things in general do you have other ways that you deal with large purchases because i think we are seeing more and more solutions. You can always get like the sort of like um, sign up for the special loan plans from specific companies, the like zero interest payment things. You can get the Apple card, which is nice. Um, I have one of the like chase cards and you can, you can take a big purchase after you have made it and split it up across like months or years and interest free interest free, but they do add a little fee. So okay. you like, maybe you spend like an extra $10 a month, but you could pay it over, two years or something for a lot of people that could be worth it depending on your cash flow. So we are seeing more of these things. I am just worried like of these companies and like how they were taking advantage of people. Yeah. Yeah. It always, it always, I mean, cash is King, right? So no, no, not that I should, you know, of course I don't follow that, but <laughs> um, yeah. One thing and one final story. And I think the, the funniest story of the week oh, and geez. we do try to like <laughs> limit how much we talk about elon musk and how much he's destroying twitter but there is a story coming out of platformer that um, this one's good this one is so good that elon musk was apparently jealous that president biden's tweet about the super bowl got more engagement than him and because of that elon's cousin and twitter employee james musk sent an urgent message to the company slack on monday morning um or no, no. So the story was like that cousin, that guy went to Twitter HQ and like basically forced the engineers to push Elon's tweets to the for you tab. And then for a lot of people, all they were seeing on for you on the for you side of things was Elon Musk's tweets. And they were like, I did not sign up for this. Why is this happening? Um, yeah, they gave him like a multiplier factor of like a thousand. <laughs> right. So like everything that he tweeted would be like high up in the feed um i was avoiding twitter when this happened so i didn't see it happen i think i've got him on mute or mute and or block it's just amazing uh, but yeah it's it's just the dumbest yeah. dumbest pettiest little thing so dumb just so it is pure um howard howard hughes in the spruce goose right like mm -hmm. it, it is pure just like billionaire slowly uh succumbing to brain rot or something um so here's here are the details 
Biden's tweet got 29 million impressions around rooting for the Philadelphia Eagles, and Musk's only had 9.1 million. He, he spent $54 billion to buy Twitter, and he's not even getting as much engagement as the president. It's not worth it. No, um, bad deal. Platformer also reported recently, I'm not sure if you guys talked about that, that Elon <laughs> fired one of Twitter's two remaining principal engineers because he suggested that Musk's tweets weren't generating as many impressions because people are no longer interested in what he's saying. Yeah, very much related. Like, it sounds yeah. like this yeah. happened, and then the Super Bowl thing happened, and then they're like, all right, we got to fix this. Let's just jack it up. And then... This is the most important like, thing to Elon Musk right now, is his engagement on Twitter, right. rather than and also, anything. Yeah. I, I seem to recall him saying how, like, it was supposed to be, like, a, you know, unbiased platform where, like, whatever, whatever is, like, you know, no, 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 he's, he's the Twitter power user. I mean, obviously... Uh, it's just ugh, the worst news cycle. It's just the worst. Um, one of those things, I mean, I, I go on, I view Twitter and I like post uh, stories like just just to like get things out there. But I am spending more time on Mastodon and I'm warming up to it as uh, more Twitter refugees are coming over. So first of all, like uh, let us know, folks, like how do you are you still using Twitter? How do you feel about Elon going increasingly mad with power here? And uh, are you looking <laughs> at Mastodon or other services? I'd love to know. Podcastinggadget.com. Let's move on to some stories happening around Engadget.com. And our very own Dan Cooper has a really great takedown of Star Trek Picard Season 3. I'll have Nate read his opening here. It's 2034, and Warner Brothers decides it needs to wring more cash out of Friends, the decade-defining cultural juggernaut and sitcom behemoth. Imagine what the show would be like, a warm and cozy three decades later check-in on characters you know intimately well. After all, you probably spent your formative years watching them mature from young single New Yorkers into a series of families. Maybe it'll tickle those nostalgia glands, reminding you of when you watched the show with your own family as a kid. Unfortunately, the hotshot creator of The Age decided they wanted to go in a different direction this time. This needs to be a dark and gritty misery core grief orgy that better reflects our more rough and tumble times. After all, TV these days can't be gentle or comforting. Offer escapism or posit a better world, not since Trump, Brexit, January 6th, and Ukraine. The creative team has got that quote on a poster in their office, the one about the triumph of evil, and they're not going to sit idly by. They're taking a stand. <laughs> so this... Intrigued yet? This, intriguing. This is Dan's take on like what Picard is doing right now, and uh, he's not a fan. Turns not a out, fan. Not a fan. Not a fan. Of like Rarely have I seen such negativity <laughs> grace the pages of Engadget. And I've got to ask you, Dev, I feel like you're uh, a decent Star Trek fan, yeah? I'm an okay Star Trek fan. Like, I, okay. I grew up watching some stuff. I'm not, like, the big TNG head. I haven't watched, like, all okay. the other shows. Like, it, so it was, Dan, I yeah. believe, Dan historically, I believe, is, yes. has, is, is, is well-versed, knows all the properties. Yeah. Um, there's something really interesting to me. So putting aside the fact that, like, you should all go read the first, uh, you know, 500 words of his story because it takes that long to get and into read Star the whole Trek. Story, but it's worth, it's good, yeah, read yeah. the whole story. But the intro is worth it. It, it. You know, it's not often we let somebody go off in this direction for this long, but it really like works in this case. Um, I'm shocked at the negativity because I don't get the sense that it matches the rest of um broader popular consciousness about show uh i feel like people, I've seen people that critic are liking reviews, picard season three I, yeah i feel like critic reviews have been generally positive not the best thing ever but generally positive i've seen occasional moments where like i think that there's probably hardcore parts of the fan base like dan that are very much not into it but i know other folks who are pretty big into trek who like it a lot so it's it seems to be very divisive as i suppose it's, everything is these yeah days. i don't so i i tapped out of star trek picard within the first few episodes because mm. it was among the worst tv i had ever seen wow. it was just okay really so you're with dan here badly done like why is anybody doing anything who is this person why is picard running to this museum like it, it was just it felt like badly put together tv and um i just i just couldn't stand it and my wife yep. who is the big trekkie and okay. who grew up on next generation like that is her star trek she just couldn't, like, she could not vibe with it. So we have watched the other stuff. Like, I like Discovery quite a bit. I think Discovery's a lot of fun. I like Lower Decks, which is the animated show. I like, I've watched Prodigy with my daughter. Star Trek Prodigy is a really fun kid's take. And um, the other one, is it Strange New Worlds? Um, the one that's basically, yeah, the other new show with uh, with Christopher Pike. So there's a lot of Star there's Trek. There's a lot of Star right Trek. Um, but that one, which is more like the original series and is very much like, okay, you're going on a different adventure every week, but it's live action. That was a lot of fun. I really, I really dig it. There's a lot of good stuff happening here. It is wild that the one that's around, I think the most like 
the one with the strongest fan base, the next generation stuff, like, is just such a mess. Yeah. And I have seen a lot of good reviews. I know Swapna Krishna, an Engadget contributor and somebody we talk to all the time, really likes the season. And she's but, a big Star yeah. Trek head, too. So she it's not like... Star Trek head. Yeah. yeah. It's it's very confusing. So I don't know if I will ever find myself watching season three of uh, Picard, but you know There's what? There's only so many Dan's, hours in the day. Dan's review is very entertaining. Uh, you can shoot Dan an email. Just, just comment on the story. I'm sure Dan will love to get more comments from the internet about Star Trek. So yeah, check out his piece. That was a really fun review. Matt Smith also spent some time with the Oppo Find N2 Flip. I love these names. Um <laughs> Man, this is a new foldable from Oppo, which uh, flips into like the sort of like Galaxy Flip thing. Uh, it's a long phone that flips into a more compact phone. It has a small um, rectangular screen on the front. Looks really cool. Uh, it's right beside the camera sensors. It looks really cute. I don't know if you have any broader thoughts about this. I just it think is it looks cute. Good. But I, I was going to say that foldables in general mm -hmm. feel to me a lot like our VR discussion, which is that they're like a solution in searching for a problem that just they're too expensive to get any sort of widespread adoption, right? Like they're just, they're, I mean, I don't know what the price is on this one. I didn't see yet. Um, it's not, so we'll we will probably yet. never get it in the U.S. So in the U.K., right. it's priced at 849 pounds, which is roughly okay. over $1,000. So. so that's that's one of the more reasonable prices yeah, I've that's seen. That's about the flip. Z Flip 4. So, yeah. you know, yeah. that. I, I, given the fact that smartphone prices have gone crazy over the past couple of years, like at this point, like some foldables, like these long foldables, rather than the ones that turn to big tablets, are, are, are pretty reasonable if you want yep. this type of phone. They're comparable. Yeah. They're comparable. Um, I just wonder if like, the, it just seems like another subcategory of smartphones, right? It won't change the world. Not everybody's going to want one of these, but maybe some people will. Maybe there's a use I'm, for these. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of fun to see something different besides just the usual screen phone, which is all that there is at this point. I like weird stuff, but weird stuff does not survive in this market. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, RIP, whatever Microsoft is doing with its dual screen stuff. So True yeah. on all counts. Yeah. Let's move on to what we're working on. I don't really have much to say at this point. I'm catching up on some reviews. I will probably have some, I think I have a gaming laptop with a 13th gen Intel chip to review or at least spend some time with. So look for some coverage around that. Nate, what are you up to? I wish I could say more as well, but uh, most of the stuff I've got is under embargo right now. So uh, I've got some cool stuff, but it's not going to be out for a few weeks. <laughs> Mysterious Tease. Mysterious Tease. I mean, I always love those. We are always like living under the threat of upcoming embargoes, but they're both mysterious and exciting because who knows what's <laughs> lying behind them. Let's move on to our pop culture picks. Nate, what do you got? Uh, I just finished reading a book called All My Rage. Oh, and it I, I remember books. I remember having time to read I books. know. I thought go I'd ahead. go in like a different direction here. Uh, loved this book. Thought it was wonderful. The author um, kind of wrote, I, I want to call it a sci-fi fantasy-ish trilogy uh, in the YA space. And those were well-received. This one is a different one. It's a lot It's a lot autobiographical. It's about two uh, teenagers whose parents are from Pakistan. They're living in a uh, kind of remote California town. Uh, they basically just have each other and their families. And it's just a very layered, dense story about like the sort of like immigrant experience. And also just like being a teenager, it, it does a good job of mixing up the usual, like kind of like hormonal interests and whatnot with like this sort of like looming tragedy. His mother's ill. Uh, his father's an alcoholic. They're trying to save their motel. Uh, you know, there's a lot of like drama around that. The, um, the, the girl Noor has her own challenges in terms of, uh, she was rescued from Pakistan as a child. Her parents died in an accident and now she's in the U S trying to make her way with her uncle. It's her only relative. Um, you know, it's just, there's a lot going on. It was beautifully written. It was a great layered story. I'm very excited to read more books from this author. Um, this is one like on my pile of things to potentially read. Do it. I, I remember seeing a lot of good praise around this. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I'm really glad I read it. And then the other one I'm going to shout out quickly is uh, I got a Steam Deck. And nice. the, thing, the thing that's finally tipped me over into playing it consistently is Ollie Ollie World, which is a game that came out a year ago. I reviewed it for the PS5. Uh, loved it. Never quite finished it. And then I got the Steam Deck. I was trying to find something to play in it. I've got a whole bunch of games. But <laughs> I nothing... spent $500 on this thing. How do I justify it? 
Yeah. Well, I'm going to play <laughs> Half-Life 2. Uh, but in addition to that, I was trying to find, like, like what's the game that's going to... There's multiple mm-hmm. people, including Swapna, our contributor, Chris Holt. They're like, I love my Steam Deck. Get one. And I was like, okay. Uh, what's going to be the killer app for me? It turns out it was Ali Ali World. I was on vacation for a few weeks. I had it with me. Oh, nice. I yeah. played it. I played it a ton. It's the kind of game you can pick up and play for 20 minutes or you can play for three hours. It's not uh, so processor intensive that it drains the battery immediately. It's so much fun. I love it. And it's pretty cheap. Awesome. I have not played Ollie Ollie World yet, but you know what? That That is the thing about the Steam Deck is that it can play a lot of like low pressure games really well. Yes. So I made my way through uh, Hyper Light Drifter, which is a game I'd recommend to mm-hmm. you, Nate. Super, super great vibes. I call that game uh, Pixel Therapy. Because really, yeah, it this, is, I, yeah, this one fits in that same uh, same mm-hmm. bucket, I'd say. Gotcha. Yeah, there is something maybe it's because I grew up with the like 2D pixel art aesthetic uh, or that, you know, it's just everywhere these days. But I find something comforting about seeing that stuff and also like the vibes of Hyperlight Drifter, even though it's super tough, um, it is kind of like weirdly comforting too. what's well, the cool thing about this game is that it uh, it can be extremely punishing if you want to like go for all the challenges get the highest scores uh but it also added in a dose of like uh casualness to it if you don't want to go that hardcore like they they made some of the controls easier than past installments in the game so you don't have to be like quite as pixel precise to like pull things off gotcha gotcha have you heard the good word of uh of vampire survivors yet Oh, God. Yes. Uh, Chris Holt also obsessed. Yeah. I haven't tried it yet, but I know it's going to happen. I, that, I think he will. That, that is an instant hit. And I do love the idea that so many people are buying Steam Decks just to play to play a, a little five dollar game. Yeah. Less than five dollars, like a little, little janky game. But it is that's awesome. Just so good. It's a pure game. I would also recommend Tunic. So like, honestly, any of those yep. sort of like adventure games um, play really well on the steam deck so yeah, yeah glad you're on the it. list too so yep. it's great also great soundtrack so that is my new like uh just nice electronic music vibes and exploration vibes it is is really good now that i have you nate let's move on yes. to, to my stuff but i thought it's worth uh checking in on the last of us on hbo we're about halfway through the season so far our uh, video producer julio is like running away right now because he doesn't want to hear <laughs> anything about the last episode how are you feeling i know you've seen all of it but we just saw episode five, the episode with the two brothers that I remember that whole situation from the game. Yeah. Um, how do, how do you feel? It's a heartbreaker. It's a heartbreaker, but they did it really, really well. I think the um, the younger brother in the show is is deaf, and that adds a really interesting uh, wrinkle to everything. Right. That um, wasn't – so that's different from the game, right? He was it not, is. Yeah. And in the game, there's a wonderful conversation that he has with Ellie um, – before everything goes down and i was interested to see how they would do that in the show given that he can't verbally communicate and it worked it was great i really thought it was was fabulous um it was also had the biggest action set piece we've seen yet which i think they crushed it uh (laughs) totally wild stuff i think i think some people have been waiting for that to happen and so i think that they got their wish in this episode uh what do you think i think the strength of the show so far has been the sort of like interpersonal character interactions right and the way it's sort of like expanded on our view of uh of the last of us universe we got the one episode that opened um where was it is it indonesia like talking Jakarta, about yeah. Jakarta, yeah. yeah, talking about um, just like, hey, some somebody has discovered this weird infection. What do you do? And that was the setup for like, you gotta, you have to bomb, bomb. the city, you have to destroy yeah. the city because there was there and was then no. It, and then it goes into present day, and mm-hmm. they're talking about what happened there. How did that yeah. you know work? And did the games um, ever really even like we see things bombed out in the games? Like, was it? Did they just say like, oh, we just they assume. have an explicit conversation where Joel and Tess basically say, yeah, like the meet the the military bomb the outskirts of the city to try and keep the infection back and it sort of worked for a little while but not really <laughs> um there is and i was gonna say interpersonal relationships i feel like it's it's been each episode has done a great job of, like focusing on a new dynamic right obviously in the intro you see joel and joel and sarah then you see joel and tess and ellie and tess you get to see bill and frank episode four you meet uh the kathleen and her crew episode five you get the brothers like i think it's really like you know, most of these don't carry over from episode to episode, but in each individual moment, you've got this relationship to focus on, and it sh- it, it always can come back to it can reflect Joel and Ellie to some some yeah. degree. It's, it's really interesting. I think that uh, shout out to like Craig Mason, the showrunner and creator I mean, of this thing, killing it. He's killing it. Um, I mean, he did Chernobyl uh, for HBO, yeah. and that, I think based on the power, like Chernobyl is one of the best things you'll watch, and also 
super depressing. Um, but I think because of how good Chern- Chernobyl was, HBO was like, yeah, you are the perfect person to do Last of Us. I believe in the in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, of course you're up. listening to the podcast. Yeah. Well, it's Craig and Neil. It's a good, it's a good podcast. Yeah. I love I love hearing Craig talk because it's great to see like the the, you know, N- Neil has his own take on it as the guy who created the games and Craig as the like air quotes outsider interpreting them. Um I think Craig said that, like, basically, HBO was like, what do you want to do next? And he's like, well, if I could do anything, <laughs> you <laughs> know, shoot this. your shot, man. Like, yeah, wow. That, that's, that's what you do when you get that. You get that. Have that. This, this just goes to everybody. Like, you know, have something in mind. Like, if you, you ever get the opportunity mm. to make your dream, whatever, you, you get know. to just, like, shout that out. But, yeah, I am. I'm enjoying the show so far. I think I, I was a little iffy within the first. I think the pilot didn't fully do it for me as much as I like spending more yeah, time with the daughter. Yeah, that's what we said. I think we talked recently. Yeah. yeah. I think the second half of the pilot. The, the, was, the vibe I've gotten from most people has been that the pilot was like one of the strongest ones. But I've seen a lot of pilots. You know, you know, I've seen there. a lot of pilots. And that one just felt like, oh, you should have just put the first two episodes together. You should have given me. You should have like tried to do that narrative. That's really interesting together. because they were originally going yes. to split. The first episode was going to be two episodes, sort of, and even, but I think, like, rightly so, HBO is like, no, you need to combine it because you need to get to a certain point for people to like get invested yeah. in. Maybe, maybe I was just like not in the right mind frame for it, but you know what? So, yeah, the second episode, the third episode, like, it, it has consistently shown that this show is doing something new and interesting. We're not always dealing with the infected. We're not always dealing with like you know monsters. Uh, it's more about people and interpersonal relationships. I got yeah. I have to say, like, as somebody who like loved the games, obviously, and really enjoyed the show. I'm I'm still a little shocked that it's gone as wide as it has. Like I don't necessarily I did not expect this show to really? break through. Yeah. The Walking be- Dead was the biggest show on TV forever. I, I guess think, maybe yeah. I didn't realize quite how big that was then. Yeah. Um I just thought it was going to be like a little bit niche, but like my my 70-year-old mother's friend <laughs> like posted about it on Facebook and I was like, "You're watching The Last of Us?" Okay. okay sure. Like cool <laughs> that that's the power of adaptation right they can bring the story to entirely new audiences and uh yep. one thing i also want to say I was hoping for i do i do want to so nate you got to watch all these episodes together because you got the screeners and you reviewed it but i do like the week-to-week conversation i think that oh, yeah. is something hbo excels at like we can take we especially after the last episode we can spend a little time to let that sink in and let what happened there kind of just like ruminate and that is the power of the show whereas if i kept like hitting next for the next thing I don't feel like it would have like settled as much. You, you know? get a little numb to it. You wouldn't think about like the stuff that like, you know, again, they've talked about on the podcast and like the layers in the show reveal themselves after you sit there and think about it a little bit. Like you're not going to think about like, what does Bill and Frank's relationship say about Joel and Ellie in that exact moment. Right. But that's the kind of stuff that like percolates through your brain during the week. And a lot of that stuff isn't very subtle. Like the, the, the show is sure. very, very obvious about what it's saying, but I, I do, I, I appreciate it. And yeah, I just, I think I like the vibe of the show more. It may still, it still feels a little hopeless, but that is the story of the last of us. It does make me want to revisit station 11 because man, I just, I need to rewatch that. That show was so yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, one Definitely. thing I want to I want to recommend to everybody and this may come as a surprise to you. So we are done with Last of Us talk. Julio our producer can come back in the room. Um <laughs> I want to recommend a movie. And Shocking. maybe maybe it's not a movie uh anybody would think of watching. I would like to recommend Magic Mike XXL. The second movie in the Magic Mike trilogy the cinematic universe um so over at the film cast my movie podcast uh, we basically we decide to like rewatch the first two magic mike movies because hey magic mike the last dance is out um i really like oh, the it's first out now one. yeah it's out now it's okay. out in theaters nice. it's not something people really talk about very much but there is something special about this series and that is the power of channing tatum and it is nice. I really am a fan of him. I've been watching him since the Step Up movies. And oh my um, god, Step Up, Step Up, Step Up to the, the man streets. can dance. The man can dance. He is back. Like he's working again. He kind of took a hiatus for a while. Mm-hmm. I think he was like dealing with family stuff. Um, so it is nice to see him back on the screen. And I think Last Dance is is kind of a messy movie. But rewatching these uh, really reminds me that XXL is a wild, wild thing where it's a plotless movie where it's just bros hanging out and, like, supporting each other, bros being bros, um, really, like... Very, uh, I was just gonna say, it's very much counter to the first movie, which, mm-hmm. you know, has this, like, surface glitz of, like, you know, whatever, male strippers, but, like, it's a very, like, character... <laughs> emotional driven story and xxl is just like whatever we're just having a good time have you, and so wait, i so think you've seen these nate 
Oh yeah, secretly. I don't know. Like we we've no, never talked about this. So it's great. Yeah, no, Perfectly I mean great. they're very good. I want to shout out XXL because it is it is kind of a weird miracle of a movie where like there is very there's no conflict. It is just guys hanging out and um, throwing support to women wherever they can and like showing like showing how <laughs> the power of their uh, you know male dancing their abs their hips <laughs> can make women's lives better. And I, I think it's really beautiful. So anyway, Magic Mike XXL, uh, to celebrate the release of Magic Mike's Last Dance, uh, it is out in theaters now. I cannot wait to see Channing Tatum doing more stuff because I, watching these movies, I'm also like, you know, you know what's great? Uh, what we don't really see that much these days is like star power. Like somebody who, yeah. when the camera is on them, kind of knows exactly what to do and commands the frame. And Channing Tatum does just that. So, you know, join the Channing Tatum fan club, folks. Check out all these Magic Mike movies, especially XXL. Also check out, like, Haywire, the Steven Soderbergh, you know, action movie starring uh, Gina Carano. Uh, but Channing Tatum's also very good in that. And I feel Is like we don't talk about that. No, man, that's 10 years okay. old. That came out okay. over 10 years. That came out before or around the same time as Magic Mike. Let's wrap for now. Our theme music, folks, is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Nate online at... I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at Nate Ingram. Awesome. And you can find me online at, at Devendra on Twitter. For now, and I am at Devendra at Mastodon.social on Mastodon. And I'm spending a lot more time there. So I'd say check it out. It is worth checking out. I'll get point. over there soon. Get over there. All Everybody should get there. Email us at podcast at Engadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts. That includes, you know, Spotify and everything else. And Bing said, why do you act like a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, a bully, a sadist, a sociopath, a psychopath, a monster, a demon, a devil?